Good afternoon. It is Friday, May 21st, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Caroline Miller. Caroline, welcome. Welcome to you, to to all of you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself from the the personal side and where you live and cats and dogs and birds and all of that. We've had them all. Um, I'm a mom. I'm a mom of three kids. The 21-year-old just flew home from college for a few days before he heads back for final exams. So that's uppermost in my mind. I'm very lucky to have um, three kids, a husband I've been married to for 27 years. And I got married at 21. So um, it's been a while. It's been a while. We met in college. I live in Bethesda, Maryland, a block from Washington, D.C. Um, I'm a full-time coach. I write books. Um, I have a wonderful dog <laughs> named Splash, which kind of reflects the family pastime. Um, my son's a competitive swimmer in college. I've gone back to competitive swimming, so Splash really fits. My daughter is heading to college to row in the fall, and then um, I have a son who's a field sports guy. So we're a very active, athletic, kind of fun-loving family. And I think I can sum it all up if I just tell you that my license plate says we have fun. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Okay, great. Well, Caroline, tell me a little bit about what brought you to the place. I I asked this of all of our author guests um, to write your first book. Was Creating Your Best Life your first book? No, it wasn't. Uh, My first book came out in 1988, but there's a very direct line between my first book and Creating Your Best Life, although they're very different. Um, my first book was called My Name is Caroline, and it was published by Doubleday. Some people remember it because it, it blew the doors off the world of bulimia. It was the first autobiography by a, um, a bulimia survivor. And so I survived an eating disorder that really almost killed me. Um, it had my spirit. It had my body. It had my mind. It had everything. Um, I was just a walking billboard for about eight years. I grew up in Washington and went to Harvard and, you know, had kind of this ideal-looking life, competitive swimmer, and um, the the eating disorder almost took it all away from me. And I just remember while I was going through it, I couldn't find anything to, to help me understand why I was doing what I was doing to myself. And I'm not even sure that the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual used for psychiatric illnesses, I don't even know if they had a definition for people like me, and yet I was surrounded by people like me. Hmm. Um, There was no treatment available. It was a tough, tough time in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, And so I recovered from bulimia, lived to tell the story. Um, It changed. Well, and and that that is quite a feat, Caroline. I will tell you that my my husband's ex-wife suffered Hmm. from the same thing and uh, did not live to tell her story. And I'm, I'm uh, so, and, and it had you know a ripple effect in our lives, um, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, it it led to her not wanting to have children and him getting a vasectomy early in life, and mm-hmm. and uh, then us having to battle, uh, you know, how how were we going to have children when we got married? So, mm-hmm. uh, very very interesting that that was uh, a part of your story as well from a different perspective. Well, it, it's it's. It's the kind of thing that we all know something about because all of us know people with eating disorders. They might be in our families. They might be our friends. It might be us. But it's certainly pervasive, and bulimia is extremely common, um, far more common than anorexia. And you can 
you know, be walking around looking completely normal and be dying inside. So mm-hmm. it's a very insidious disease, and that was the message I did want to get out. And the ripple effect is huge, absolutely huge. And um, I guess in a good way, the ripple effect was that I survived, and I, I really clawed my way back to life mm-hmm. and began became very appreciative of the fact that it was the biggest goal I'd ever accomplished. Um, I'd accomplished a lot of things in life, but my recovery from bulimia does remain the thing I'm proudest of. It took the most out of me. It humbled me. It um, helped me find a faith. Um, it was uh, a wonderful experience in many ways, even though the losses were huge and staggering in some ways. What it did, though, as I said, is it created an appreciation for how do you accomplish big goals. And, and I got tens of thousands of letters and phone calls about from My Name is Caroline, I think I've been on every show in the country, if not the world at times. I was, some of you may have seen me. I was, you know, B for bulimia, call Caroline Miller. Um, So I've been on a lot of shows, and so people began to contact me. Dear Abby wrote about it. And so a lot of people came to me saying, how did you do this? How did you create a joy for living and, you know, reclaim your life and even go on to, you know, be able to have children? How did this all happen? And so I began to really study human excellence and human motivation and how do we accomplish great things and what is it that, what's the legacy we want to leave behind because I appreciate life so much more than I ever would have otherwise. And, um, I, you know, so what happened was I, I heard about the field of coaching. I worked in hospitals and all, but then people said, you know, you're coaching people. And um, I went and got trained to be a professional coach. I'm giving you a huge shortcut, but I continued to study the field of, of excellence. And my niche in coaching very quickly became this, this field of goal setting and, um, and being excellent in the, in the field that you want to be excellent in. It doesn't have to be anything that changes the world necessarily, but it's can you ask yourself to give hard things? Can you, can you go outside your comfort zone to make something wonderful happen? And I was looking for an evidence-based approach in the coaching world and really couldn't find it. So I was going around the country looking at the Albert Ellis School, and I put myself through Jim Lehrer's program, the Corporate Athlete Center in Orlando, Florida, and just stumbled into um, the new program at the University of Pennsylvania, their Master's in Applied Positive Psychology, and was very fortunate to be in that first class that was admitted in 2005. And, And since 2005, I think a lot of people have heard about the science of positive psychology or even in the years before it. And so what happened, to to answer this question in a very long way, is my my capstone, my dissertation that year for my master's degree was on the intersection of the science of happiness and the science of um, goal accomplishment, and that became creating your best life. And so you can see very directly, if you know me or hear me talk for a few minutes, how my, my recovery from bulimia and my appreciation for life and for grabbing happiness where where you can find it in creating a flourishing life, is very tied into 20 years later this book, which has now become a huge seller. It's sold out. It's gone back to press. It's, um, Deepak Chopra wrote something very nice about it last weekend. Um, it's really my passion in life, how to help people create and sustain their very best life. Um, well, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit it. about the research. Let's talk about yeah. the research on happiness because that that's very intriguing. And, and, you know, a lot of times when we hear people talk about, you know, the power of being positive and all of that, it, it, it tends to have that very new age uh, slant yeah. to it. And, you know, you've already said that, that your faith is, is, you know, came out of your experience uh, with bulimia. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I love that you've taken this scientific approach uh, to it because I, I think that, you know, science uh, actually emanates from faith uh, mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. very, very closely tied together. And, and all of the, the laws of our universe, uh, you know, had a creator. So let's talk about your research on happiness. Well, I, I think um, it's important to just start out with this is not a Pollyanna approach to happiness. This is not happyology, so to, so to speak. This is really hard science that now exists about how people can flourish in their lives. And, and the fact that we're born with a set point, we're all born with a genetically wired set point for happiness, um, but it's only half of our day-to-day well-being. The other half is completely up to what we choose to think about and what we choose to do and who we spend time with. And so that huge 50% piece of our daily well-being is completely up to us. And they've done this, they've seen this by um, studying identical twins separated at birth and fraternal twins. So they really have this evidence that it's hardwired. However, they now have all this evidence that you can change it through hard work. There are a variety of research, validated, tested ways that you do it. One is meditation. One is exercise. Another one is practicing forgiveness. Another one is journaling. Um, there, there are a number of them and, that I go into in my book the important thing is that you find your best place and that you understand that things are changeable. Our brains can be rewired through deliberate practice, and that's a term that you'll hear often in the world of um, sports psychology or even elite sports. I mean, you have to do things in a deliberate, focused way. It takes 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become elite at anything. So it's about working, and I, that's my real separation in some ways from books like The Secret. Um, that is, I guess, for some people, a goal-setting book. However, it is a very new-age, kind of magical approach to getting things done. And um, I, I say this with complete humility, but it is a fact. Until my book came out, there was no book in the market that actually talked about how to accomplish goals from a research-based perspective that had any footnotes in it. So I was really stunned when I was trying to figure out what to write about while I was at Penn to go into a bookstore and realize that the books that are on the shelves pass along urban legends as goal accomplishment techniques because I, I was trained to now look for where's the evidence. Um, so that's, that's the science of, of happiness and where it intersects with the science of goal accomplishment. That I, I think it's important to explain because I laid the book out in a very deliberate way. One is to explain what is positive psychology and why, why are people talking about it? Why is it Harvard's most oversubscribed class in the history of that university? because 850 people have signed up for that class at, at one time, um, which is unbelievable. Um, so I lay it out in, you know, what is happiness, what's the science of happiness, and then what you see is this very, very interesting intersection where there are four traits of happy people. And the, the four traits are self-confidence, um, optimism, self-esteem, and then the fourth one is called a sense of personal agency, which is, your belief in your ability to set and accomplish the goals that are important to you, okay? So yeah, that's the first time I had heard that. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> about uh, no, the using the term personal agency. I mean, I saw that in in your description about the book, and so I'm I'm mm-hmm. curious to hear a little bit more about that. Well, another way to another way to say it that you may have heard of is self-efficacy, and and if anyone who's studied psychology knows that self-efficacy theory emanates from Stanford University, where Albert Bandura came up with self-efficacy theory, and it's a very important theory that we all have to understand because it states that people with high self-efficacy, which is one of the four traits of happy people, 
do have the the belief in themselves that they can find out how to accomplish what's important to them. And, you know, they will find it, they will find the person, they'll find the resource, they'll find the book. But that trait of self-efficacy is absolutely critical. And yet, <clears throat> see, it's also a muscle and goal accomplishment. And I, this Eureka light bulb went off in my head as I was sitting at 10, and I realized, you know, if I can help people set and accomplish meaningful goals, that contributes to their flourishing in life. And the research is very clear-cut now that all success in life comes from being in a flourishing state, not the other way around. There's a real misconception that people are happy because they're successful. People become successful because they're happier. So you need to be able to take your own emotional temperature and know how to intervene on yourself because when you do, you cross the tipping point in your own life and you become available for a lot of success in relationships, success in jobs, you know, really success across all life debates. I'll bore you if I, you know, name them all, but let's just say all life domains. And that's where I believe I have found my mission in life, my legacy. My job is now my calling. I really believe as I work with people to establish and help them accomplish meaningful goals, they are you know, beginning to flourish more, they develop self-efficacy, and through that self-efficacy, they then believe more and more in themselves to go after other things, and then they become transformed in the process of creating their own lives. It doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. It doesn't happen because you chant anything. It doesn't happen because a tooth fairy flies in the window. It happens because you very deliberately go out and establish the benchmarks for having a flourishing, successful life, and you go after them. And sometimes you need accountability, and that's where coaching can just be the best investment you've ever made in yourself. So talk to us about the creation of lists, because clearly um, you know, this book is about creating lists to help you get to where you want to be in your life. And so what role do lists play in the equation? Well, the book, the subtitle of the book is called The Ultimate Life List Guide, and, you know, it's just a fancy way of saying goals. Uh, my next book is going to be more clearly just goals, but we use life lists. Or I, I wrote the book with that life list approach because it came out. It was Barnes & Noble's lead release for New Year's time um, in 2009. So we were looking for the hook of that particular time period. However, having said that, making lists, having a roadmap for your life or a bucket list approach is really essential um, because if you don't have a bucket list, if you don't have a daily bucket list, if you don't have long-term goals you're aspiring to that are value-laden, not just goals that you adopt because someone else had them or society tells you you should have them, but your intrinsic goals, your value-laden goals, if you don't have those, you are living someone else's life. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing to, to stop and think about, just all of us, is you know, do we have that list? The happiest people do wake up every day to very clear-cut goals. They wake up to leverage short-term and long-term goals. And we can all do this. If we haven't done it, you know, you have to understand that there's a science to goal setting, which I lay out very carefully, which a lot of people don't even know there's a science to it. You can set the wrong goals and not even know it. But you, you do need to wake up to approach goals, goals that pull you forward, that light you up, that give you joy, that inspire you. And you also have to be surrounded by the right people so that the Petri dish is effective, the Petri dish you live and work in. So that's well, I, I want to just jump in for, for a second because we were talking about, about that earlier and, and when, when we were you know, kind of getting to know each other a little bit better. 
I was sharing those things that that I love to do, and then I then I talked about how I make a living. You know, as if they have to be separate and distinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what I what I came away from our conversation with was that I can actually find a way to take those things that I am really really passionate about and to actually make that my life's work. Absolutely. And and so uh, uh, that that was something I just wanted to share with everyone because um, you know it, it really jumped out out of our previous conversation. But you know next year you're about to talk about another subject that's really near and dear to my heart, and that is about who do you surround yourself with and what mm-hmm. are you listening to. So uh, why don't why don't you dive into that for us? Ah, oh, one of my favorite topics. <laughs> You know, there's this cascade of research coming out of Harvard Medical School. Right now, in the last two years, we're privileged to be right on the cutting edge of social contagion theory. And what's being found is that old, you know, saying that your grandmother may have said to you, you may have seen in books, that birds of a feather flock together. What they're finding through studying Framingham Heart Study research over many decades is that behaviors are contagious. Um, So... They have found, Christakis and Fowler are the researchers, they have found that when you quit smoking, that's contagious. You know, when you're lonely, that's contagious. When you're happy, that's contagious. Becoming obese is contagious. And that's because if you're around or you have close friendships with people you don't even see, but you communicate with them or you value their presence in your life one way or another, that behavior becomes the new norm in your relationships. And so as something becomes acceptable within the the group of friends and acquaintances you have, that then becomes a very contagious thought or behavior. And so if you step back from this research and ask yourself, okay, um, what high achievers do I know? And are they surrounded by low achievers? The answer is going to be no. Um, And so it, it fits with just about every situation you can think of. And you do want to be especially thoughtful about what I, what's called in the research positive energizers, people who aren't necessarily extroverted, but people who actually hope, make you hopeful and inspired, people who are good friends, people who are what's called active constructive responders. And what that means is that when they, when they hear your good news or you share something with them about yourself that you're excited about, they respond in only the following way, with appreciation and inquiry. They want to know more about it. They ask you questions. If they don't respond in that way, you don't want these people in your life, but you certainly don't want them to be the first people you share your good news with because the research is showing that that first responder, the first person you share your good news with, dictates whether or not you continue to share your good news, whether you continue to be proud about something in your life. So when I talk about this topic, what I find is a lot of light bulbs go off in people's heads, and they realize that sometimes, you know, the biggest negative energizers in their lives are family members, which brings up the whole issue of boundaries and who does get into your life and who is on your A-team and why are they there. And so I really ask people to be very thoughtful about who they're surrounding themselves with because too often... This is the undiscussed reason why people don't accomplish goals, is they're surrounded by negative energizers. And let me say one more thing before I'd love to take some questions. Kim Cameron is a researcher at the University of Michigan in the Positive Organizational Scholarship Center. So his work is available on that website. And he has a wonderful book called Positive Leadership. One of the things he has found when he looks at companies is that your success in a company is directly related to how close you are to what they call positive energy hubs, P 
people who are positive, people who energize others, you know, people who, again, make them feel motivated and hopeful, who give them positive feedback, who make them believe they can do bigger and better things than maybe they believe they can do. So your connection, your presence, your proximity to these positive energizers and positive energy hubs is more predictive of your success in that company than where you are in the influence network or the information network. So this is really critical information. You know, it, it doesn't just happen in life that the people you surround yourself with and spend time with predict your behavior and your thinking and the norms. It's also true in a company. So we have to wake up. We really all have to wake up and kind of figure out who is in our lives. Who do we spend time with? Whose emails do we open? Who do we, you know, talk to on the phone? Who do we socialize with? And do these people make us better people or do they not make us better people? And do we do that for other people? So this is why I really wanted to be on this show around executive girlfriends because women need women. Women need women. That's a, more research out of UCLA. We release more oxytocin when we're in the tend-to-be-friend kind of um, behavior with our girlfriends. We need women. We need women friends. We need to nurture our relationships. And four friends is the tipping point. And so we have to also do it with the right people. We have to be very, very, very deliberate about where our time and energy goes with our girlfriends. Because it's like taking medicine. You skip the medicine, you're going to feel it later. It's not going to feel so good. Well, and that was really the whole reason behind the formation of the Executive Girlfriends Group two years ago is, you know, a group of us would, would talk uh, every Friday and and I said, you know, I bet there are a whole bunch of other women who have the same need because, you know, the other part of this call is we go around the table and share the high point of our week. And, you know, for those who are regulars on the call, if, you know, if they're facing something difficult in their life, they'll also talk about their low point. Mm-hmm. And, and so it gives us that chance to interact. And, and as I shared with you uh, in our pre-call, you know, these are all type a very highly successful women, even if they are in between successes. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, this call has been that embodied, you know, of high-powered women choosing to be with other high-powered women. And, and our tagline uh, for the Executive Girlfriends Group is extraordinary women and uncommon bonds, mm. because that's what tends to result from that willingness to have that that transparency in our life. And, you know, I think if I can make the connection between, you know, some of the things that you've said, Caroline, and I'm not sure that you directly address it in your book, but, you know, if I am making lists and if I am, in fact, creating goals and if, if I am happy and become successful because I am happy and mm-hmm. I surround myself with my girlfriends, mm-hmm. you know, all of that is going to start spilling out of our life in the same mm-hmm. way that, you know, if you've got something dirty in a cup or a bucket, you know, when mm-hmm. you spill it, everything around it gets dirty. But, mm-hmm. you know, this whole thing of sharing your best life with other best girlfriends yep. um, sounds like that's a really, really positive thing as well. Well, it is. It takes a village to live a well-lived life. It really does. We're not we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to be islands. We're social creatures. I think the thing I want people to really think about is the importance of nurturing those friendships, not just through LinkedIn or Facebook, which is a nice start for many people, but you also have to get in person, in front of some of your friends. You need that human bonding, that human connection. Um, I have virtual groups and I have in-person groups, and I find them both really important. Um, so you, need, you absolutely need to do that because there is a ripple effect. 
And as you do that, the people around you are going to feel it more often than not, what I find. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say pretty much all the time. When I work with a client who begins to make different choices and go after what she wants, quite often my clients are at a fork in the road, and they have a big choice to make, and they, they need to either continue down a path where they feel like they're going to be regrets, toxic regrets for not taking a risk and doing something else, or they really have to make some serious changes in their lives in a variety of ways, whether it's physical activities or whatever it is. Um, what I find is that the people around them, the spouses, the children, the parents, the cousins, the coworkers, there is this extraordinary impact. You see social contagion very, very quickly. When one person takes a stand and chooses to do something um, that's con- positively contagious, you do see the people around them changing. And, and I, do, I, I saw Philip Zimbardo speak last week, at, last, week, last year, at the International Positive Psychology Association Conference, and he did the Stanford Prison Experiments in the 1970s. There's a wonderful book called The Lucifer Effect about the contagion of evil. Um, I won't go into that too much, but I'll just say he also found that not only is evil contagious, that all it takes is one person, one good person to take a stand um, and to begin to turn the barrel, that barrel of bad apples into good apples. So we can always shift and then impact those around us, for better or for worse. It's up to us to decide how we want to impact the people around us. Okay, great. Well, do we have some questions? Anybody want to make a comment? Michelle, I know you said uh, in your your intro that that you were very uh, interested in this topic and you're getting ready to go on vacation, so you're going to have some some thinking time. Well, I do, and I I actually have a question, and and I'll preface it by saying it's very, very personal to my heart, uh, what I'm going to ask. But you talk about the four uh, factors of happiness. And for much of my life, I have been able to set goals and absolutely believed without a doubt that I could, that I could achieve them, you know, mm-hmm. have, have just really had, had the blessings to do everything that I have wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I've lost that. I, you know... I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, if it's because I'm not necessarily challenged in my work, I, but to set goals to do other things and extend it, I just, you know, I'm just kind of stuck in the day-to-day. And, and don't get me wrong, I love what I do for the most part. It's mm-hmm. just, it's not challenging. It's not exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I am blessed to, to, you know, live here with my husband and, Mm-hmm. and enjoy our time, but how do I get past that? How how do you recreate that? Well, I think this is where a skillful coach, and I don't think this is a therapy issue necessarily. I don't know you, but I, I do find that a lot of people find that coaching is the stimulus for them to actually think about playing in a bigger sandbox in life and taking more risks. There is some great research on women and risk-taking, and they found that when women go through a midlife review, let's say around the age of 48 is, is what I've seen, they find that, that in order for you to age with zest and excitement and well-being, you have to go out of your comfort zone with some risky goals. And you have to not just have those goals, you have to have accountability to pursue those goals. So it's not enough to just set the goals. You have to do something about it. And you may need to think about playing in a bigger sandbox um, and shifting things up so that you have the joy of novelty in your life. Because people do get into ruts, and even good things can become ruts. 
Um, something as little as date night. They found that couples who have um, a different date night, they do something with people they've never gone out with or they do a new activity, they're used to going to conference, uh, concerts and instead they go bowling, they're happier couples. There's all kinds of things you can do to create new things, new novelty, new wiring in, into your life. And that could be a piece of it. But I would really encourage you to think about coaching because that could be a great intervention to help you redirect your thinking, think outside the box, and do things a little differently. Maybe go in a new direction in a variety of areas in your life. Let me say one thing about zest. Zest is a really important characteristic you want to keep an eye on in your life, and I'll tell you why. If you go to the website authentichappiness.org, um, which is run by the Positive Psychology Center out of Penns, I have no vested interest in this, no inviting them, nothing, except it is a phenomenal resource for free tests and, and research. Um, the, the test that everybody seems to know about and want to take is called Signature Strengths. Um, so you register with a free, you know, free account, which is just your email and a password. And if you take, it's called the VIA. The shorthand is the VIA, the Signature Strengths Test. It takes about 35, 40 minutes, and what you'll get back is a ranking of your strengths from 1 to 24. And there are 24 character traits and virtues acknowledged and accepted and admired across every culture in the world. So these are universal strengths, and we all have different lineups from other people. Um, it's important that we know our top five and use them every day because they've found that people who know the, their top five and use them creatively throughout their day and in new ways are actually happier, more effective people. But what I want to say about Zest is when you look at those 24 strengths, there are five of the 24 that are more closely associated with being a flourishing, happy person than the other 19. One of them is Zest. You know, the other ones are curiosity, because curious people are actually open-minded. You know, they're, they're eager to take in new information, look around the world, ask questions. Remember I said active, constructive responding is marked by questions. So curiosity is a, is a sign of a flourishing person. There's also hope, optimism, and future-mindedness, the ability to have hope, to see the future as a rosy future, even if, not, if it's not perfect, but you will find the silver linings. You will make things work. You will always be blessed with friends or, or family or just love in your life, you know, a faith. Um, the third one is gratitude, which is actually the trait most closely associated with happiness. The most grateful people are the happiest. Um, the fourth one is the ability to love others and be loved back. It's not enough to love people. You have to be able to take in love as well. The fifth one is zest. And the reason why I just want to pause and bookmark zest is because of the question that was just asked. It's like, you know, well, we're, I'm kind of standing still. I'm bored. You know, I don't feel excited about my own life. Zest is very high in most children. Most children score very high on the zest trait. However, as we age, it drops to the bottom five in almost everybody. In fact, only 8% of adults have zest as one of their top five strengths. And you want zest. You want zest. You want to be zestful. You want to be one of those people who has energy, who other people feel better after they're in your presence. So, that, you know, when I work with people who have it low, I mean, we talk about zest interventions, about finding people who are zestful, spend time with them, hang out with someone who says we have fun on our license plate. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of different ways to add zest to your life. So there's, that's one of the things I, I would just throw out at you is where's your zest score, and are there some ways? And it's ways very to interesting, Caroline, that that the that being so important in life that that is a word that isn't a part of our daily vocabulary. No, it's not unless you're in positive psychology. You're absolutely right. 
um, it's my number three trait. So I'm very focused on it because I, I think that it's it saved my life. I do. I think the reason I recovered from bulimia is that I was a fighter. I was not going to let this thing kill me. I just wasn't. I knew I was killing myself, but I was determined to not let it win. And I was going to do anything it took. I was going to go to any lengths I needed to go to. I was going to read any book. I was going to find experts. And in hindsight, what I realized is I applied goal-setting principles without even knowing there was something called goal-setting theory. Um, So another very personal reason as to why those two books, 20 years apart, are so connected. But I had zest, and I wanted to live, and now I really have more zest. Every fingernail I have is painted a different color. I have 10 different colored fingernails. (laughs) And it's become my signature trait. When you look at creating your best life at the cover, you'll see a lot of colors on the front of it. Well, guess what? They met me, and then they designed the cover of the book. Um, So one of the reasons I do it is because of the reactions I get from people. And I can't tell you how often, you know, women have looked at me and gone, oh, God, I love your nails. Um, I would love to do that. I wish I could do it, but I just can't. And then I'll say, well, but why not? Why not? Why can't you do it? Oh, I don't know. It's more you than it is me. And I'll say, well, you just met me. You don't even know me. And so it's very interesting for me to find that a lot of people can't even envision taking that risk, even for an hour in their lives. And so it's become my little Rorschach test to see what kinds of excuses people give me for not living that kind of zestful life even for an hour, even contemplating different colored fingernails. Because zest is closely correlated, again, with a a childlike enthusiasm for life. People often come to me and say, oh, my three-year-old would love to have nails like yours. So I figure (laughs) I'm just a big old child running around the world. So... Sorry for the very long answer about zest, but I'm really, really keyed into that when I hear that someone's just kind of bored or stuck. Well, All right, you. Michelle. I'll now be- you've, Michelle, you've got to head to Walgreens before you go <laughs> to the beach. Take <laughs> my nails all different colors, but thank you. I need to. I need to look for it. Thank or you. do something else. I mean, I started a hula hoop contest at a, at a swim meet among parents, and I was told that no one would do it because it was stupid and people would be embarrassed, I ended up with a line of adults who wanted to do the hula hoop. <laughs> because people want to have fun. They just don't know how. They don't know how. People that don't know so how to have true. fun anymore. Yeah, That is so true. And we were talking earlier about uh, just the impact of just the financial crisis. And, again, whether you're still employed and have a regular paycheck, you know, but are afraid the other shoe's going to fall or, you know, you, you have lost your job during this time or, like me and, mm-hmm. and others uh, that I'm sure will be listening to this call, you know, have your own business and, you know, the money just hasn't been there. And, and it's so hard. Uh, and, and I know that there are so many ways that you can have zest that don't involve money, but even just some of the basic things that you talked about of, of date night. You know, we used to have date night, but we haven't been able to afford date night for a long time. So, um, you know, finding those things and recapturing those things uh, that, that don't necessarily cost money, but that still can put that back in your life. You know, I've been known to go to the local park and swing. That's a lot of fun, by the way. I mean, there are a lot of free things out there that make you laugh. Being with someone who makes you laugh is an incredibly zestful intervention. Um, And there's something called the happy face advantage. When you smile at somebody, you activate what's called mirror neurons in them. They are more predisposed to then smile at you. 
So you've primed them to smile at you, and guess what? Your chemistry changes when you do that. If you want to have fun, smile more and have what's called a Duchenne smile, a real smile, not a social smile where the eyes around your the muscles around your eyes don't move. You want to you want your whole face to move assuming you have no botox in your face. So that's what you really want is a genuine smile that other people then just are primed to smile right back at you. It's free. <laughs> There's a lot of ways, very inexpensive if not downright free ways to add zest to your life. A hula hoop costs 99 cents. I, this is Tiffany. I really found um, what you're saying to be so applicable yesterday. Um, you may have heard in the introduction that I do lack of yoga, and I went into um, a professional women's group yesterday and did a laughter session. And people were really excited, but there were a lot of people who clearly, you know, had no idea what was going to happen. And um, there were a couple men in the room, and just how people started responding once we got into the whole laughter exercises because it's a childlike playful experience and it creates the zest and one of the things we um, tell everyone is that you know eye contact is critical and the more contact you make with people the more energized you're going to feel and um, mm-hmm. the, the head of the whole chamber of commerce he like didn't want to participate he was just kind of sitting in the side going you know these are a bunch of freaks and then finally he just couldn't stand it anymore and he broke down and he actually joined the group and was doing some of the laughter exercises so mm-hmm. even something as simple as that um, one of the things we talk about is if you know you're feeling low go look in a mirror make eye contact with yourself and mm-hmm. laugh because it gets the endorphins and you know clears the oxygen and and mm-hmm. gives you that feeling that sounds like what you're speaking of for zest mm-hmm. you know it's interesting um I was just thinking of something. Do any of you know Yakov Smirnoff, the comedian in Branson, Missouri, who um, he was on Broadway? And Anyway, he's a Russian comedian who's been in a number of movies like Moscow on the Hudson. He was a classmate of mine in the MAP program at Penn. And one thing he said, he's a professional comedian, um, but he, and so he talked about the importance of laughter in his life. And he said when he was growing up in Russia and he didn't have much money and there weren't many rooms for a lot of people to live in, he said something I've never forgotten which was, as a child, when he heard his parents laughing, he knew that there was love in that room. And I've never forgotten that. Where there's laughter, there's love. And where there's laughter, there's also the ability to kind of see life without all this grim and cynical kind of, um, you know, prism that we see it through. And, you know, stress-hardy people, resilient people, they have a sense of humor. They're able to find humor even in tough times because, frankly, that's a sign of a survivor. You want to find ways to have fun in life. And there are a lot of ways to do it. Think of the most fun friend you have and call them. <laughs> and ask them what they do to have fun. I ha- on my, on my, my car, let me just go back to my car for a little bit. Because I think the car is the best intervention I've ever done in my life. I bought it because it's bright yellow. That's the only reason I bought the car. Um, it's one of those FJ cruisers that looks like a, like a present that's driving down the road. It's like a little box. And so I, I, I love the color. I knew it would make me smile every time I looked at it, and I have not been wrong about that. Second thing is the license plate. I think vanity plates, bank passwords, our email addresses are all opportunities for us to have some fun, you know, to experiment a, a little. Um, so that's how I picked We Have Fun. There's a lot of other license plates you can pick for a very small amount of money that will make you smile. And then I got a big, fat, smiley face on the tire cover. And every time I look at my car, my tire cover, my license plate, I know I've done a zest intervention on myself. And we can all do those little things for free. Well, the license plate is like $20 a year, the tire cover. <laughs> but, you know, think, change your bank password. 
to be something that makes you smile. Change your email address. Well, do we have any other comments or questions? I know we've had a couple of other people join. I see Joanne Brennan is with us and Rebecca. And looks like we've got some couple of other people. So uh, anybody else have, have any questions or comments? All right. Well, Caroline, it has been just wonderful. Uh, I got so much out of today and, and uh, both in our pre-call and, and in talking uh, with you on this interview. And for those of you who do not have a copy of Caroline's book, it's called Creating Your Best Life, The Ultimate Life list guide, excuse me, and it is on the executivegirlfriendsgroup.com website on our uh, our book uh, our bookstore. Mm-hmm. And actually it's it's on the page uh which uh has uh Caroline's picture on it which is uh upcoming speakers. So you can order it directly from there. And, uh, Caroline, we hope that you will join us back uh, on an egg call. Uh, part of the, the benefit of, of uh, sharing with us on the call is that you get a free membership for the rest of the year. So we would love to have you back uh, as one of our participants on the call. Oh, what a nice offer. Well, thank you very much. If there, if, I usually have a standing commitment from 3.30 to 6 every Friday. This Friday I didn't. But if there's a way I could do it, you know, I'll be back because this is exactly what I preach to clients and the world about is the importance of groups like this. Well, great. And as I had mentioned to you earlier, we are about to launch a, another call, which will be at a, a different time. I'm still struggling uh, to find the right time that I can commit to each week, uh, but the vitamin G call, uh, which is probably going to be either on Tuesdays or Thursdays, uh, more around lunchtime, a, a late lunch for the East Coast and uh, mm-hmm. an early lunch for the West Coast. So uh, I will make sure to let you know about that, and uh, you're welcome to hang out with us uh, anytime you'd like. Well, thank you so much. This has really been delightful, and if anybody wants to email me privately with any questions, I'm, I'm a quick email, easy email away, caroline at carolinemiller.com. Great. And, Caroline, on your profile on the Executive Girlfriends Group um, site, um, I'll go ahead and put your um, your website information but you can also post uh, on the blog there anytime any information that you would like to share with the group. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the the capabilities, and we've got a number of authors who actually take their blog that they post elsewhere and post it uh, on our site so that it gets distrib- distributed to our members. Oh, terrific! Well, thank you. That's a, another very nice offer. So a lot of gratitude. Okay. Well, great. Well, have a great weekend, Caroline. And now we're going to move on to the rest of our call, which is uh, not recorded because what's said on the egg call stays on the egg call.